0: I just kind of wanted to let you know where we are in our schedule. So we've been looking at Discipline 1 especially, but also Discipline 2, and it's we've been looking at them with a zoom lens. We've been dialing in right up close. What is the heart? What's God's design for your heart? What did God do when he saved you? What does it mean to shepherd your heart? Why do you need to shepherd your heart? Why does your home need you to shepherd your heart? And we've just dialed in really up close and personal on those things. And this week... We, we kind of pan out just just a bit, um, not as far as we will eventually, but we're going to pan out a bit more because we're going to see how those disciplines um, tie in with Discipline 3, God's design for his church. So I hope that that's really encouraging. This is bigger than just what I'm doing in my little corner of the universe. This is about God's design for his church. So I hope that that's really encouraging. Um, so that will be our first pass through the disciplines, if you will. Then the next set. The next time that we pass through the disciplines, that'll be our our next two weeks of the year, and then we're done until January, we'll be looking at examples of women in the Bible and how they lived out the disciplines. Um, Things we can learn, things they did well and things they didn't do well. And that hopefully will be especially refreshing as we head into the holidays where so much of the rubber meets the road and so much of our hearts are exposed. And to actually see what it looks like to evaluate these disciplines in the lives of real people from God's word should be a really helpful tool in that season. Then we come back in January and we go back to discipline one again. Uh, This time it'll be hearing from a couple of our elders with lessons from discipline one. And also on that pass through the disciplines, we'll be looking at some specific verses or specific passages for each discipline. Um, Then we'll go back to discipline one again and we'll work our way through the disciplines, but we'll look at them more topically. That pass through. Um, Then finally, we'll come back with one more example and look at all three disciplines in the life of Abigail, and we'll finish the year in Revelation 2. Smedley will come and teach us on the heart. And I want to encourage you that as we make this schedule each year, we pray a lot, and then God directs our paths. And one of the things that's really encouraging is that, especially when I'm talking to elders and asking them if they'll come teach, you know, I don't want to be bossy or anything. And so I often say, you know, i really love for you to come teach this lesson, but is there some other lesson that you'd want to teach? And I'm not going to tell you you have to teach Revelation 2 again. And you know I hear over and over again from all of the people who teach. They'll say, I mean, not that it's ever wrong to have a new lesson, but I hear from Smedley, for example, no, actually, I need to study this lesson, and I need to teach this lesson every year. So these are not just lessons that are being pulled off the shelf and like, oh, yeah, let's let's go back and do the wellspring thing again. These are these are lessons that the elders of our church um, and older women in our church are shepherding their own hearts with, and so they're eager to shepherd their own hearts as they prepare these lessons to bring them to you. So I hope that's helpful just to kind of see the big picture of the year and how it all flows together. Um, Let's see, Tina, I think there's a thermostat just right outside the door. Would you go touch it down a few degrees and we got all our warm bodies in here together? Feels like it's still August. (laughs) Okay, Um, so that's our schedule. Now today, um, we're studying Titus 2, three to five, and before we jump into the lesson, um, I wanna remind all of us that God's word is our standard. Our culture isn't our standard. Uh, For this lesson or for any other lesson, Um, the way we grew up is not our standard. The way I do things, the way you do things, that's not our standard, is it? It's God's Word. Um, And God's Word is a good standard. It's true. um, And we need to embrace it. We need to obey it. Um, And it is helpful for us to have examples. Today is a lesson where there are some examples that will be brought in. But at the same time, we have to be so careful not to let the examples become our standard. So just keep that in mind. You know, what your husband finds loving, my husband might not find loving. You know, how you work in your home might not work very well for how I work in my home. We all have different seasons of lives, different people in our lives. Um, and so as we listen to this, let's just be careful. We're not here to compare ourselves with each other, right? Instead, we want to be encouraging one another and learning from one another to look to God's word. Um, that's, that's God's design. All right, you've got a whole big stack of handouts today. The top little sheet you can add to your songbook. Um, it's some, you'll use this song as part of your homework this week. So that's why we printed that out. If you were in Wellspring last year, you got that song last year. You'll already have that. Um, and the rest of those little handouts we'll talk about as we go along. Uh, but for now, you can pull out the white handouts. That's what we'll be using to get started. So go ahead and turn your notebook over. We'll start with our Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines after we pray. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day. Lord, each of us is completely dependent on you for everything, Lord, for the breath that we have for our lives, for waking up, for every physical provision that you provide constantly to us. Father, thank you for designing a world, a universe in which you constantly display that you are a providing God and a giving God and a powerful God and a generous God, a kind God. You're kind to ungrateful and evil men. And Lord, we are here today um, because you are the one who saves sinners. Lord, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. But according to your mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by your Holy Spirit, whom you poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by your grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, thank you that salvation is all of you. And as we look to your word and we grow in our understanding of what you have saved us for, Father, There's not one righteous act we can do to add anything to our salvation or to even keep ourselves in salvation. Rather, we are saved, we are instructed by your grace so that our lives will reveal what you have done in us, so that our lives will be trophies that show the greatness and the power of your grace. Lord, help us to listen and understand this in a way that grows our love for you, grows our obedience towards you, grows our usefulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we flesh that out with three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So we want to be faithful women of God. We want to shepherd our hearts worshipfully toward God through the word of God. And so how do we do that on a practical level when we're reading from a passage? that's just more difficult to understand. Well, most importantly, we want to approach all of God's word with humble dependence on the Lord. You can look with me at Psalm 119, 18, if you like. It's the first verse up here. And it says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. That's how the psalmist prayed. He understood that God's word is full of, wonderful things. And so he cries out to God for the ability to see them. He knows he won't be able to see them without God's help. And so we too must prepare our hearts for meeting with God in his word by coming before him in prayer, with humility, and expressing our need for his help in understanding his word. Now, in addition, this is just another practical tool we can help ourselves understand what we're reading by seeking to better understand the big picture of the Bible. And so you received a couple charts today. It's the back white sheet. It's the colored sheet. Um, One side is for the Old Testament, and one side is for the New Testament. Um, And taking some time to look at this chart... Before you begin reading a new book of the Bible, can help you really can help prepare you for what's coming in that book. Who are you going to be reading about? What's going to be happening? What happened before? What's coming next? What was going on at the same time? What books were written in the same time period? And and so as you do that, you get to see where it fits in the larger flow of Scripture. And grasping that big picture can really help us better understand what God was saying when he breathed out his words that we have in his word so that we can respond with greater worship of him. Um, Discipline, too, then, is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Now, if you live alone, I want you to think about extended family and others who spend time in your home, because in every season of life, God's design is for us to make an impact through the kind of people we are in our home. Now, one of the best examples of this in my life is my grandma. My grandma... Uh, lived to be nearly 101 years old. She was married at 19. She She had nine children, the first five in seven years, in a home without electricity or running water. She was widowed after 53 years of marriage, and so she spent 29 years living alone. Great big rambling farmhouse out in the country. And she was such an example to me of hospitality, hard work, service, nobody walked into her house without being cared for, without being fed, for sure. Um, As a matter of fact, the 29 years that my grandma was single after my grandpa died, were every bit as influential in my life as the years that she spent as a wife with kids at home. And I just love sharing her story because it's such a good reminder that all of us will go through different seasons. None of us know how long we'll be in the season that we're in today but the kind of person we are in our homes matters in every season. So how can we know how we're doing with this discipline? Are we being faithful women who are concerned for those in our home? Well, here's a question we can ask ourselves to help us evaluate. Do the people I love and spend time with outside of my home have reason to think that I'm nicer, more caring, more godly, more servant hearted than the people I live with might think that I am. You know, if that's the case, or when that's the case, it's very possible that we've set aside honoring God's design for us in our home to be a sweet gospel influence and aroma with those in closest proximity to us. But when we are careful to care well for those, in our household, then we bring into our other relationships and ministries a sense of integrity that we are not putting on a show, but rather there's authenticity that who we are outside of our home is truly a reflection of our our walk with Christ. And that's clear because it's on display as strongly in our household relationships as it is with anyone else, maybe even more so. (coughs) The people in our household will change from season to season, but every season is an opportunity to honor the value God places on the home by caring for the people there with our heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline three then is ministry, which, is, which says with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And we will really see the biblical foundation for this discipline in today's lesson from the book of Titus. But before we jump into the lesson, I want to remind us all again of what we've been hearing from week one. And that is that discipline three starts right here. It starts with you. And it starts with me. Um, Discipline three begins when you reach out to someone in your small group, someone in your wellspring group, maybe someone you've met for the very first time on a Sunday morning. It could be a text, email, phone call, meet up for a walk or a cup of coffee. But when you reach out and you connect with someone else, both of you are reminded that we are a body together. That there are no Lone Ranger Christians. God didn't design us that way. He did not design his salvation to lead us to isolation. The gospel makes us one with each other, a body in which every part needs every other part. And so I have an assignment for you this week. It's not on your homework, but I want you to reach out to someone else in Wellspring this week. Put yourself in a place to be used by God to encourage someone else. So those are our disciplines. Um, Now, today's lesson, as we've said, is on Titus 2, 3 to 5, and there are so many layers here to see. We're going to see instructions for godly living, and then we're going to see instructions for our relationships with each other, especially older women with younger women. And then there's the big picture, how all this fits in the life of the church. And that's a lot from three short little verses. Um, There's a lot more here than what we could ever cover in detail, and so we've listed some resources. That's the second little small sheet you have. Um, The first one is information about the audio version of the book we've been recommending all year, A Gospel Primer. It's super helpful to be listening to that throughout the day. Um, There's even, last time I checked, there was a way to get it for free. You have to jump kind of through some hoops to sign up and then unsign up. But if you don't mind jumping through hoops, you can even get that one for free. And I've just, it's so helpful to be listening to that, you know, the hour I'm making dinner before other people start walking in the door at the end of the day. Really, really helpful. Um, And then the, let's see, the next two books are specifically on Titus 2, 3 to 5. Um, they are excellent resources I heard Janet Yates say once that she tries to reread um, one of these books every year um, just because those truths are that important and that central that she wants to be renewing her mind with what God's designed for her as, as a woman in the church every year um, and then the last one is based on Proverbs 31 which is another wonderful passage describing a godly woman and as you can imagine there's a lot of overlap with that um, with Titus 2 um, the first two books, based on Titus 2, are written more with a married woman in mind as the audience. The third book, the Proverbs 31 book, um, Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye, is written more with a single woman in mind. But I will tell you, all three of them are very good for anyone to read. I, I highly recommend that you pick one of those up. Don't don't be put off by the pictures on the cover or the title of the book. Um, I've let that keep me from reading books together very before. Um, and that's, that's foolish. Um, and, and always the the priority is to be in the word, you know, make sure that that's happening first. But if you have not, um, ever read any of these books or you're not really, don't feel like you have a good grasp on God's design for us as women, um, as part of his body, I really encourage you to pick up one of those books. They'll be available at the book corner. Um, So, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Titus. Um, As with any passage of scripture, understanding why these verses are here is so important for correctly understanding the passage. So, that's where we're going to start. Now, the book of Titus was written by Paul, and in it, he's addressing a problem. The churches in Crete were out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. And in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes... For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So the churches needed order, and they needed elders to help bring that about. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul described a problem in the churches on Crete that the elders must address. There were rebellious men, and these rebellious men professed to know God, but by their deeds, they denied him. <clears throat> These men were exerting an influence. And verse 11 tells us they were upsetting whole families. Households are being thrown into confusion. And so Paul gave instructions for godly living that would bring order. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, "...but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine." And then he begins with instructions for godly living, addressing older men and women, younger men and women, even slaves, all different kinds of people found in households and in the church. Because when there are people who profess to know God but deny him by their deeds, it's all the more essential that those who truly know God know how to show that they know him by their deeds. And so in verses 3 to 5, we find his specific instructions for women, instructions in godliness, and instructions for how we are to help one another grow in godliness. And I hope that reminds you of discipline 3 as you hear that. So let's read together from Titus 2, beginning with verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now here in these instructions for setting the church in order, we've got the church and we see that it's necessary for God's word to be honored. And in order for God's word to be honored, our lives and our relationships need to show that we've been changed by the gospel. So do you see how weighty that is? How it's all connected? God has entrusted a significant responsibility to us as women in the church. Now, thankfully, Paul didn't stop there. We're going to keep reading because beginning in verse 11, Paul explains the gospel foundation underneath these instructions. So Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And what are those good deeds? How do we honor and obey grace's instruction? Well, it's what we saw in verses 3 to 5. Now, remember, salvation is by faith alone. Our works do not add to what Christ has done. Rather, they display what Christ has done. And so this godly character in verses 3 to 5 is exactly what Christ redeemed us for, to be zealous for these good deeds, so that we would clearly be seen to be his people. These are Grace's instructions to us. How gracious that God does instruct us how to live. So be encouraged. But it's also sobering because Grace's instructions are not optional. Now, please understand, Paul is not just saying, go clean up your act, go get it together. Now, he's showing us how important. Our godliness is in the life of the church. There was a problem in Crete, and the women had to be part of the solution. And we too need to remember who we are in Christ and honor grace's instructions to us and step in by his grace to fulfill the role that God has given us to strengthen his church. Christ has saved you out of all that you were. And he has purified you to be his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. And your church needs you. Other women need you. And you need other women. These instructions are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. So that our households are protected. Remember, they were under attack in Crete. And so that our church is strengthened. And so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's turn to page two of our worksheet. We're going to summarize our passage with a statement at the top of that page. The word of God is honored through gospel transformed older women training gospel transformed young women. Now, Roman numeral one on the outline says what older transformed with what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So we'll start by talking about what's meant by older women. Now, the text doesn't indicate a specific age range. It's probably referring to women who are 50 or 60, women whose children are grown. But older is a relative term. Some of you guys remember the days at this church when uh, those approaching 30 were older. Um, Really, all you need to do to be older is to find someone who is younger. There you go. All of us are older than somebody. And each season of life brings new perspectives that need to be shared with those who are younger than we are. Younger women are encouraged as we are transparent and share how badly our hearts need the gospel every day. So practically speaking, I find it helpful to think of myself as both an older woman and a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as older women as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger. Sometimes they're younger in age and sometimes they're younger in the Lord. And we can think of ourselves as younger women as we look for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. It means cultivating a humble, teachable attitude. So that the godly influence of others brings good fruit in our lives. And we can build these relationships in many different ways in the life of the church. It could be women with whom we serve. That's a really sweet way to form this kind of friendship. We also have this opportunity in our small group right here in Wellspring as well as in other ministries here at Grace. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, be sure you talk with Chris Evans. Her contact information is at the end of your outline. And that's one way that she serves our body is to help women make those connections. So what is the older woman to be? Well, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior. She's not a malicious gossip. She's not enslaved to much wine. And she teaches what is good. Her life is to set an example that others can follow. And these qualities go together. Together, they make her the kind of woman who's ready to encourage and train younger women. So what is reverence? Reverence. Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older women are to do everything with a view towards worshiping God or to see all of our lives as set apart for God. Now, growing in reverence means that our sense of worship is less and less compartmentalized. It's not just limited to our church activities or our time in the word, but increasingly it permeates who we are all day long no matter what we're doing, no matter how tired we might be. This is a woman who prays. She prays alone in her prayer closet, and she also prays continually throughout her day. Now, when I think about the reverent women I know, they are women who deeply understand how badly they need the Lord every minute. And as they've grown older, they have fought the temptation to fear Fear the future, fear the unknowns, fear fear what's coming. And they fight those fears by fearing the Lord. They know they're weak, they know they're needy, and they know that God is trustworthy. And the only way we can cultivate that kind of reverence is day by day, year after year, drawing near to the Lord in his word and prayer and continuing to grow in shepherding our hearts throughout the day, every day. It's discipline one. And it doesn't happen just because we get older. It's a commitment to a Godward focus, to trusting him, believing in his sovereignty and his goodness in such a way that it shapes how we live. It's desiring his glory above all. This is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible in our lives, and it's what grace instructs us to be. Well, number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. Now, the Greek word for malicious gossips is used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Isn't that shocking? It's the same word. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that in our words or even in our thoughts and attitude. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to slander Or accuse someone in your mind. Maybe it's assuming they have a sinful motive. Keeping a record of wrongs. Being critical. Judgmental. And if that's how we're thinking, it's no wonder when we find ourselves with an appetite for gossip. Whether it's on social media, break room, small talk, chatting with a friend. After all, it's out of the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. You know, it's scary to think that an appetite for slander and accusations follows Satan's example, but we have been set free from that. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this ungodliness, and now we are being made more and more like our Savior, who is our advocate, not our accuser. We must imitate him by advocating for others in prayer rather than finding sinful satisfaction, tearing others down. Well, number three is not enslaved to much wine. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places, he condemns drunkenness. Older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine, and the emphasis is on that word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women in the churches at Crete because that's what Paul is addressing here. Many see alcohol as an escape, but the reality is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when one seeks to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, shopping, our phones, exercise, anything where we might be seeking to escape, to make ourselves feel better apart from Christ, as if he alone is not enough for us. Now, I really want to encourage you, ask God, ask someone you live with to show you if there's an area of your life where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, if we don't repent, it will cripple our walk with Christ as well as our relationships, both inside and outside our home. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from malicious gossip, away from enslavement to alcohol or anything, to find her joy, her comfort, her peace in her Savior, Jesus. That's the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. That's how we honor grace's instruction. Well, finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. And this is an ability to help a younger woman understand the things that would be beneficial to her. It's helping her understand what's beneficial. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from God's word, right? God's word gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or experiences, although there are times when that can be very, very helpful. But we need to be women who bring others to the word of God and then encourage them to submit to God in his word, to believe every single word of it. Now, this isn't necessarily a formal teaching role. It includes our example, our casual conversations, So let's ask ourselves, are we daily planting ourselves in the word of God and positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be, that grace instructs us to be, so that we can encourage younger women? You know, it's interesting that in Titus chapter 2, it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. It wasn't the elders who were told to do this. No matter how godly Titus was, he wasn't the right person to encourage the young women in this way. The church needs godly, older women to do this. Women who understand God's grace, that it both saves us and sanctifies us. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline. What transformed older women must train the young women to be. Verse 4 begins, So that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. And that makes sense because these things take practice. They take encouragement. And we want to help younger women walk a path of growth in godliness. Now let's read Titus 2, 4, and 5 again. Older women are to be this way so that... They may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying. Now, maybe you've wondered about this relationship between discipline two and discipline three. But if you look back at verses four and five, I want you to notice how many of these relate specifically to the home. He addresses the relationships of the home three times. And he talks about the work of the home. And being sensible, pure, and kind is certainly essential for being a godly influence in our homes as well. So even as we walk through these one at a time, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. God is showing us that the home needs to be central in our ministry with one another. So number one is husband lovers. Now to love her husband literally in the Greek is, um, yeah, to love her husband is literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is. It's not just what she does. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband cherishing him, loving him with a self-giving love, and being friends with him. This is a self-giving love that we choose to give. Remember that on Crete, many marriages, maybe most marriages, would have been arranged marriages. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband uh, would truly stand out as a representative of the gospel. And with all of our confusion in our culture about marriage, we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives, whether we're married or not, by the way we value biblical marriage. Now, although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It's sadly all too easy to let a critical spirit develop and to creep into our attitude towards our husband. And so we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in this to model our love after God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In the same way that we do not have to earn God's affection, do not make your husband or children, for that matter, earn your love and devotion. Don't withhold your love, your friendship, your affection. Love unconditionally, even when they are stubborn and disobedient, because that's exactly what you cherish about God's love for you. Let them cherish that kind of love from you. Lavish God's grace on them just as God has lavished his grace on you. Now, to help women love their husbands, we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, and marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead. It's not primarily about what makes us happy. God wants to use our challenges, our struggles, to draw us closer to him, to grow our character so that we reflect him in our marriage. And when we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to his image. We'll begin to look more like Christ as we forgive and give up selfishness and control. To help women love their husbands, we also need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities, before children, ministry, activities, work, other friendships. You know, it's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and we find, our husbands expect, find ourselves expecting our husbands to help us sometimes. Um, and forgetting that in Genesis 2, God created the woman to be a suitable helper to her husband. That doesn't mean our husbands can't serve, that they don't serve. Um, but we should have an attitude of thankfulness, not entitlement. And so we need to encourage women to give their best to their husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him, I'm going to read Ephesians 5:33. If you've got that one open in your Bible, it says, "The wife must see to it that she respects her husband." If you look really closely, you'll notice that it doesn't say if he deserves it. You know, that's how the world thinks, but the Gospels put on display when we respect our husband as an overflow of our love and trust in Christ. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that finds joy in putting his needs ahead of our own that doesn't compare him to anyone else. This is the kind of love in which young women need to be encouraged. Now, if you're not married, I want to challenge you also in two particular ways. First, are you cultivating this kind of love toward the people God has put in your household, toward your roommates, your family, Of course, it will look different outside of a marriage relationship. But the foundational principles of selflessness and grace, being motivated by God's love, they're the same. This kind of love for others shows the lost world that we belong to Christ. And my second challenge is this. Do you encourage your married friends to love their husbands this way? Because every wife needs good friends who will encourage and remind her of how important it is that she love her husband. Well, you might want to keep a marker in Ephesians 5, because we'll be back there in a minute. Um, But for now, let's return to Titus 2, verse 4, where we find that older women are to encourage the young women to love their children. So young women are to love their children, or literally, they are to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have many opportunities um, to love and cherish children. There are children around all of us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you are children lovers. Um, Now, being a lover of children means we are to cherish and enjoy children, and are intentional about loving them in a way that points them to Christ. This is a love that's selfless. It's affectionate. It's modeled after God's love for us in the gospel, just like our love for our husband is. And it's interesting that though there is so much that can and needs to be said about training and parenting children, here, Paul's focus is our heart. Attitude. By all means, parents need to diligently search the scriptures to understand the responsibilities that God has entrusted to parents to instruct and discipline their children, to be an example to them, to teach them the greatness of God and His ways, and to help them see their great need for His rescue, for His salvation. But what Paul highlights here is the attitude that must undergird everything we do with children, whether we're parents or not. But that can be easier said than done. So, here's a very practical place to begin. Loving children begins with choosing to think loving thoughts. Even planning what those thoughts will be so that in that moment of temptation, we're prepared to think what's loving so that we can also do what is loving. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses four to seven. I want to share some examples of how to do this that I borrowed from one of the books on your resource list, Becoming a Titus II Woman. And you'll have a chance to practice doing something like this in your homework as well. So first, if we want to think loving thoughts, we need to know what love looks like. And 1 Corinthians 13 gives us some descriptions of love. Verse four begins, love is patient. Love is kind. Verse 5, about halfway through, says love is not provoked. And at verse 7 ends by saying love endures all things. So, for example, we can ask, what would a patient thought look like? What would a kind thought look like? So consider these examples. You know, it sure does take a long time to walk to the park when you bring children along. But... By being patient to go at their pace, I get to show them love, and I get to point them to their great creator who made this beautiful world that they're so good at enjoying. Or how about when you're up all night? You know, this is pretty awful, (laughs) being up most of the night with my sick child, but I can still speak in a gentle, kind voice, because love is kind. I'm a new creation in Christ, and he's given me everything I need to be kind when I'm exhausted. One last example. How about when you're tired of disciplining a child? A loving thought might go like this. Well, my feelings are saying, I have to stop what I'm doing one more time and spank this child. I'm gonna be so frustrated. But I know I can, by God's grace, do what is right and show love to this child with my attitude, with my words, with my actions, since love is not provoked and love endures all things. I can love this sinful child because Christ first loved me. So replacing selfish and unloving thoughts comes by God's grace and diligent work on our part. But as we discipline ourselves in our area, God changes our character and we will grow in loving children in the way he desires. And as we persevere in loving children in a biblical way, we are strengthening our homes and our church. This, too, is God's, his grace's instruction for us. So go ahead and turn back to Titus 2 now. We're going to look at sensible So to be sensible deals primarily primarily with the mind or thought life. It means that we're not to run to the edges or extremes in our thought life, but instead we strive for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off-center. Being sensible will lead us not to blow things out of proportion in our mind, to give every situation its proper weight, nothing more, nothing less than what it should truly bear. We won't minimize what is truly weighty and we won't give more weight to something than it deserves. And this is such a good exhortation for us, isn't it? Because what happens when we do allow our thoughts to run to extremes, when we're not being sensible? You know, maybe we get test results from the doctor. If we're not being sensible, we can easily convince ourselves we've already got one foot in the grave. We can give in to fear, anxiety, Or someone's a little rude with us. And if we're not being sensible, we might run to extremes and assume that they're angry with us. We might respond with feeling offended rather than being merciful and concerned with the troubles that they might be experiencing. Or we read an article about politics, vaccinations, whatever the issue might be. And if we're not being sensible... We can run to an extreme position that isn't careful to guard both our witness for Jesus Christ and our relationships with those who have a different opinion. We give the issue more importance than it deserves. In all these cases, a failure to be sensible brings us to focus more on ourselves than on the Lord. But being sensible turns us back to the Lord, trusting him with the test results, being loving to that other person who's having a bad day, and seeking the Lord for wisdom in the choices we make, as well as for his grace to respect those who disagree with us. This is grace's instruction for us, so that in our thinking, in our responses, we're protecting the honor of God's word. That brings us to pure. This word means to be morally pure in all ways, including sexual purity. Grace instructs us to be pure pure to be holy in every dimension of our life from the inside out. It's purity of heart, mind, conduct. It will be seen in our speech, in our clothing, in our relationships. Now, when Scott taught a sermon on this last year, he said something that was so impactful. He said, if we never let into our heart one impure scene from outside of us, like from a movie or a magazine or a book, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. So don't heap more impurity on your mind by letting your screen, you know, your phone, your TV, whatever it is, your entertainment maybe, don't let anything funnel impurity into your mind. So let's just ask ourselves, how good are we at detecting impurity? and then fleeing from it. Do you flee when you're tempted to dress carelessly, immodestly, maybe even to get attention? Do you flee when you're tempted to watch or read something that makes immorality look good? How sensitive are you to fleeing from impure, sinful relationships, from even fantasizing about them? God commands us to flee And he commands us to repent. We need to remember the cleansing and the new life that we have from Christ and turn away from impurity to take hold of that which is good and pure. Our homes and our churches need us to be pure. Well, next we have worker at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. Now we need to be careful how we understand this. If we are not employed outside our home, we can't assume that we are workers at home because there are lots of opportunities for laziness or busyness or misplaced priorities that take us away from being workers at home. Paul expressed concern about this in 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 3. You might wanna jot those references on your notes and look at those look at those more on your own if you like. 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 3. But on the other hand, if we are employed outside our home or we're working from home, single or married, we can't conclude that we can't be workers at home or somehow that that's not our responsibility. This quality isn't optional for any woman in any season of life. Just like being pure, being sensible, it describes who we are. It's not just what we do at a certain time of our lives. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. And one reason Paul is concerned with us being home working women is because of the importance that God places on the home. Now in the New Testament, households are a part of his design for hosting and serving churches, for hospitality, child training, evangelism, discipleship, refreshing missionaries, and those imprisoned for their faith. See, the home is important to God's work in the church. And as women, we have an important role as workers in our home. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. And so what does the work of a household include? Well, the greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there and who visit there. It also means being faithful with the work that a household requires, being good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, and learning diligence and managing the many tasks so that as much as it's up to us, our home is a place that reflects the gospel's work in our lives and in our relationships. Being a worker at home means joyfully accepting the time investment required to serve and care well for those in our home. For the married woman with children at home, it means choosing to find contentment in helping her husband and shepherding her children. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. And so how does that leave us to think about work outside our home? Well, if we think about the Proverbs 31 woman, she was busy with lots of things outside of her home, but it's clear that that wasn't contradictory to her being a worker at home. She was still caring for the needs of her household and everything she did outside of the home was for the benefit of those in her home. It wasn't for selfish gain and that was evident to those in her household. And so there are circumstances when it's appropriate for a woman to work outside her home or from her home. But if you're married, especially if you have children, it's a weighty decision to engage in this kind of additional work. It's a decision that needs to be made carefully with your husband's leadership as together you evaluate in your particular season of life, what's your motivation? Is this the best thing for your walk with the Lord, for your marriage, for your family, for your church? You know, there are times when a woman may need to work outside her home out of submission to her husband. And so something that could be really helpful if this is an area where you feel like you need help um, getting on the same page with your husband is um, there's a a build lesson that was taught to the men on this passage last year. And if you want the link to that, I can send that to you. But just ask your husband, can we listen to that together? I want to make sure we're on the same page. Um, And that will help him understand God's call and design for you as a worker in your home. But no matter the circumstances, there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home, to be available for the work in our homes, even if we're employed outside our home. So if you do work from home or from your home, here's what you need to do. Be a home working woman who also works outside your home and do it without guilt. Do it with all your heart as serving the Lord and recognize there are challenges. There's challenges to every circumstance. And there are a lot of other good things that you might have to say no to. But you can trust your Savior. He's good. He loves you. This is what he has for you. His grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and for you to be made more like Jesus right now. And you are part of a body. I encourage you. Let godly older women encourage you and support you in the challenge of being a worker outside your home while still being a faithful worker in your home. Either way, grace instructs all of us to be home working women. And if that's a struggle for you, I just encourage you, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for the work of your home. You may need to find women who can help you learning the practical skills of household management and organization. Um, Not because there's only one right way to do things, but sometimes others have ideas that can be helpful to us. Um, You know, I think it's just important to remember this doesn't seem like a really spiritual thing, you know? Um, Maybe it doesn't seem like the most important thing to work hard and to be faithful in our home. In God's economy, it has great value. All right, number six. That brings us to kind Go ahead and turn with me to Luke 6.45. Now the word kind, the Greek word translated kind here, is also translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or a goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. In Luke 6.45, Jesus said, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good we're back at discipline one again because the way our hearts get filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. Do you see why we never graduate from discipline one? See, this kind of good treasure from God's word in our hearts will produce kindness in what we do. It's interesting, too, how kindness falls right on the heels of being workers at home. You know, often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, very often, our household is where we can be most careless about being kind. We can start keeping track in our mind, maybe, of who has served more. Or we might not be careful with our tone of voice, our facial expression, to be certain that we are expressing kindness and giving grace along with our words and actions. But since genuine kindness is something God produces in our lives and it flows out of us from our heart, it can't be based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us, but it's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And grace instructs us to be kind. That brings us to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. Now, you can go ahead and turn back to Ephesians 5, because in just a minute, we'll look there again. So let me ask you, what do you think about submission? You know, before Christ, all any of us wanted was self-ruled. Remember the blue chart we had, the second lesson this year? Over there on the left side, it was all about serving ourselves. But now, as those who are new creations in Christ, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God places us under authority at many different levels and always for our good. So we need to let our mind be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Understanding submission is relevant whether we're married or single. Because a biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage our married friends. And understanding submission prepares us for marriage, if that's in our future. No matter our season of life, there are authorities to which we must submit. Our family, job, school, government. And the heart struggle that we have with that authority very often boils down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen Sinful people. So, understanding submission here will help us deal with that struggle in other settings as well. So, being subject means to voluntarily place ourselves under. It's placing ourselves under. It's not waiting for someone else to tell us that we have to get in line. It's not something we do only when someone is watching. We line ourselves up under our husband's leadership following him, asking him, seeking to be in unity with him before we make decisions, commitments, purchases. It means that serving our husband is our priority. It's not an afterthought. Now, follow along with me now as I read Ephesians 5.22. It says, wives, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And as Christ is honored by a church that submits joyfully, and wholeheartedly. So in the same way, we honor Christ, we honor grace's instruction when we submit to our husbands joyfully and wholeheartedly even as we trust Christ. Grace's instruction is not honored by grudging or partial compliance. Submission in marriage is a great privilege because we get to display the submission of the church to her Savior. But, It's such a good thing. Why is it so hard? Well, we could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes because of our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think we're right. And so we need to realize that our battle for submission is not a battle against our husband. It's not against anyone in a position of authority. It's a battle with our own sin. That's our biggest adversary. We need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He is the one we are trusting and honoring when we submit, whether or not our husband deserves it. Submission is done willingly without being contentious. That word contentious just sounds like a bad thing, doesn't it? Contentious. But let me tell you what it means. It's exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels, And disputes, a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. Proverbs 19.13 says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Just think of an ongoing irritation. We need to be intentional about agreeing with our husband as often as we can rather than contending with him. Just because he's not doing something the way we do it doesn't make his way wrong, right? That sounds like that ought to be obvious, doesn't it? I needed to be taught that. It isn't helpful to your husband when you jump in and correct his parenting midstream. Now, it doesn't mean that we never speak up, that we don't ever share our opinion, particularly about major decisions and issues. We do need to speak up in appropriate helpful respectful ways we do need to seek for biblical unity with our husband in parenting that's important but we need to wait for the right time to approach him maybe ask him what a good time would be and make sure our own heart is ready to approach him with the goal of building unity remember we're one with our husband not just trying to persuade him Our position. And we need to be careful. We shouldn't think that every decision our husband makes has to be discussed with us either. You know, God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate am I being helpful or am I being wearisome, contentious? What would your husband say? What do your children see? You know, it's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. If we see a sinful pattern in our husband, we can make a gracious appeal. That's part of being a helper to our husband, too. We may need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder or a godly couple. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family, of our husband's choices. But always, 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 That has to be done after prayer, examining ourselves through the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with the speck in his and with the utmost respect, humility, love, gentleness, and grace. Turn now to 1 Peter 3. We'll finish this virtue with looking at verses 1 to 4. 1 Peter 3 verse 1 says in the same way, and he's pointing back to Christ at the cross here, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So, what's the restric- instruction even for this kind of husband who is disobedient to the word, who's not a believer? Be submissive. Let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious. the sight of God. Now, submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit, and that's why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the leadership and the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission. It's so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families, it strengthens our church, it honors grace's instruction, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. We'll go ahead and turn back to Titus 2, verse 5. Because this brings us to Roman numeral 3. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? This really brings us right back to where we began. We've seen that Paul is concerned for the church. And that the way in which we must be part of strengthening the church is to live in such a way that, as it says in Titus 2, 5, that the word of God will not be dishonored. What a privilege that is. God took us from being lost, rebellious, God-haters, and he purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus to give us himself. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. And then, by his grace, he places us in his body, in the church, And he makes us part of strengthening his church by protecting the honor of God's word through our relationships and spurring one another on in godliness. That's amazing. But I want to close with an excerpt from the gospel primer. That's the third small sheet that you received. And I want to end here because if we leave the gospel behind, these instructions could either discourage us Or they could give us a false sense of self-righteousness if we think we're doing pretty well. Only the gospel can keep these instructions in the beautiful place they deserve to have. So go ahead and I'm going to read this. You can follow along if you like. Preaching the gospel to myself each day nourishes within me a holy brazenness to believe what God says, enjoy what he offers, and do what he commands. Admittedly, I don't deserve to be a child of God. And I don't deserve to be free of sin's guilt and power. I don't deserve the staggering privilege of intimacy with God, nor any other blessing that Christ has purchased for me with his blood. I don't even deserve to be useful to God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I have what I have, and I hereby resolve not to let any portion of God's grace prove vain in me. And, To the degree that I fail to live up to this resolve, I will boldly take for myself the forgiveness that God says is mine and continue walking in his grace. This is my manifesto, my daily resolve, and may God be glorified by this confidence that I place in him. Let's pray.